everybody. This is Jessica Manley here from the National Young Farmers Coalition. We hope you enjoyed our most recent episodes on building food safety on your farm with Maggie Kaiser. And today we're bringing you the first part of the final installment of our Washington Young Farmers Coalition takeover series, Farm Resilience and COVID-19 in Washington State. These episodes have explored food access, social justice, mental health, and farming through one of the toughest seasons yet. If you haven't listened to earlier episodes, I encourage you to go back and listen now. We'll hear today from farmer Ariana Delania, a farmer at Kamayan Farm, about how stress and anxiety can show up in our farming careers and how these challenges have been exacerbated by the global pandemic we all find ourselves in. If you want to support our Washington chapter and our 45 other chapters across the U.S., become a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition today at youngfarmers.org join. And you can also sign up for our advocacy network by texting FARMERS, F-A-R-M-E-R-S, to 40649. And just a note, the thoughts and opinions expressed here are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of the National Young Farmers Coalition. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. This is Elizabeth from Long Hearing Farm. And thank you so much for listening to another episode of our podcast series, Farm Resilience and COVID-19 in Washington State. You are about to hear a conversation between Ariana Delenia from Kamayan Farm and myself. It is a beautiful exploration of what it means to be a farmer in the midst of global pandemic and global uprisings for racial justice and still have to make vegetables grow to feed people every day. And so really what we get into is the nitty gritty of how to manage stress and anxiety in the midst of being August tired. So I think all of all of the farmers and food systems workers out there know what we mean when we say that. We're going to split this conversation into two parts. The first part is Ari and I really just talking to each other about how stress and anxiety show up for us. And then the second episode is a focus on practices and skills that we've developed to manage stress and anxiety that I encourage you all to listen to. Um, So Ari is an incredible, amazing farmer. Kamayan Farm is a vegetable, flower, medicinal, and education farm just east of Seattle on Snoqualmie People's Land. In this episode, we discuss loneliness, stress, anxiety, so please take care of yourself and listen to your needs before you listen, as you listen, and as you process this conversation. Hi, Ari. Welcome to the space, and thank you so much for spending time with me this afternoon and talking about stress and anxiety and mental health, and maybe we can talk a little bit about (laughs) some some practices that we both do. Um, But why don't you start with introducing yourself uh, and maybe some of the hats that you wear uh, to the folks who are listening today? Cool. Yeah, my name is Ari Delenia. I run Kamayan Farm as one of my many hats. Uh, which is a small farm located in the Snoqualmie Valley, uh, just outside of Seattle, Washington. And 
alongside that job or that calling, I also work for a small agricultural member nonprofit called Snow Valley Tilth. Um, and oh, there's so many hats. I am also <laughs> very committed to my family and to my community, specifically my queer and trans BIPOC community. Um, yeah, I think those are the ones that I'm wearing most often right now. The conversation about mental health in the food and farming community, I feel like there's a taboo or I feel like often, even though there's like a presence, even though there's like workshops on mental health and like conferences, I feel like when I talk to folks about stress and anxiety, there's still sort of this dismissal like, oh, well, it's just a stressful job or yeah, I'm stressed, but like it's June and like I'm supposed to be like that. So just like a broad where where do you feel like we're at? Yeah, so I think in particular with this season, we're seeing mm. this kind of breaking point around farmers' stress and mental health um, because we're in the middle of a global pandemic and we're in the middle of this uprising for racial justice. And um, I think... I thought a lot about why this is, but I think, you know, farmers have this sort of ethic or mentality that we just continually adapt no matter what the circumstances are. Mm -hmm. And part of that is really beautiful, right? Like part of that is because we have new pests every year, or we're trying new crops out every year, or the soil changes. And I think there's part of that that's a really beautiful story about how Farmers are so intertwined with the land that we are constantly having to shift with it and shift with the ecosystem mm. and be a part of that ecosystem. And then mm. I think the unhealthier or the challenging part of that story is that because farmers are now working inside the system of capitalism, that mm -hmm. the boundaries of what we're physically mentally and spiritually capable of are just completely blown out and we're expected to just constantly rise to these different challenges no matter what and I think that also really ignores the fact that um, farmers are humans too like we all come into this work with our own traumas our own families our own communities our own um, hardships and I think a lot of people that work in like caring professions or caretaking professions which I would put farming under just don't are never afforded the time or space to really have their own experiences um, mm. you know like I've gone through seasons where I've gone through breakups or had really hard moments in my family and because of how we farm these days, which is often um, alone or with a small crew if you're a small farm owner, um, rather than with a larger community in the way that I think a lot of folks used to farm, um, mm -hmm. at least in the United States context, I think that um, 
you know, we don't have the time and space to really process when there are things happening in our life that don't have anything to do with the farm. And we're just sort of continually expected to push and to get through the season and to deliver and to be, to wear so many hats and to be like a farmer and a soil scientist and a customer service person and to be really excellent at all of those things. Mm -hmm. And that's just too much for one person to really carry. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in terms of like this moment that we're in right now, specifically, I, there's a phrase that at least farmers in my area use, which is um, saying that they're August tired, Mm -hmm. which for me in my body and in my experience, that means like I'm beyond exhausted. I have a hard time finding words. I'm so exhausted. Um, my brain's not really functioning. It's really foggy. It's hard to write emails. You just sort of like are in this groundhog day loop of waking up exhausted, working a 12 hour day, going to bed exhausted and doing it over and over again. And that's usually like, that usually happens in August, right? And I've been hearing a lot of people say they're August tired since March and April, which is usually when like, Hopefully, we're sort of ramping up our energy along with the season and getting into the groove of things. Um, and that is something that is really worrisome to me, both at a, on a personal level, but just as, at a community level and at a food systems level. Like, what does it mean that all of the farmers that are growing our food are really, really burnt out and the season is just starting to get into like its full swing. Yeah, that's so funny because I was just about to ask you, how does stress and anxiety show up in your body? And and I have another follow-up question on burnout, so help me to remember. Okay. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I will remember because I do actually feel August tired, but I will try. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just, um, I'll just hint that, that, yes, that is also how folks are talking about their where they're at at the moment. I definitely feel August tired, and I feel like how that shows up is just like getting just getting through every day is all I can do. And then I just yeah. get up the next day and I just like, there isn't a lot of space for like feeling satisfied or present or as my therapist says, like in my body, I'm mm-hmm. just kind of done at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a really hard state to exist in constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think the question about um, where does the stress and trauma and anxiety live in our bodies is a really interesting one because everybody everybody stores things or holds things in their bodies in different ways. And some of that just depends on who we are as our own unique people. And some of that um, can depend on how we're shaped by our family structure and by our, uh, like, larger social norms and cultural norms. Um, But, yeah, you brought up the book, The Body Keeps the the Score, which is sort of about the ways that we 
assimilate our lived experiences into our bodies. And we, we do that at a very, in a very literal way. Like we, um, when we have experiences, um, or traumas and we don't have the time to work through those, um, meaning like, we don't have time to sort of let that energy move through our body. Like say you're, um, you almost get hit by a car and you have a, a response where you like, <gasps> you hold you suck in your breath and you hold it in when you're scared. Um, and then if you don't have either people around you that can help process that experience or you don't have a the, the knowledge to like, move your body after that happens, those experiences can get stuck in our bodies and kind of stored in our bodies at a cellular level. Um, and what's interesting for farmers or for people who work in nature a lot, I think if you observe the animals around you, a lot of times what you'll see is like if you see a predator chase a, a bunny or something and catch it and then the bunny gets away, you'll kind of notice that like, the animal will shake off after that happens. That's right. Um, so animals intuitively have this knowing that when something traumatic happens, they have to move it through their body. Um, and a, a lot of animals do that by shaking or making noise, or there's lots of different ways that different creatures do that. And humans, for a lot of different reasons, don't complete those cycles of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um and when I say trauma, I don't necessarily mean like, I don't necessarily mean that looks like getting assaulted or getting in a car accident. Like trauma means very different things to different people. And it's really just an experience that gets stuck inside of you that you don't process. Yeah. Um, and so I would also say like chronic stress of farming and the chronic stress of maybe not making enough money from the farm or being in debt from your farm um, is a form of trauma or can be a form of trauma if you don't have enough other support to deal with that. Um, So for, for me, the way that my body handles this is I just kind of leave my body, which is a trauma response that I developed at a really young age. Um, And I oftentimes during the summer have the feeling of being kind of like in an astronaut suit where the surface of my body is actually really far away from where my actual body resides, if that makes any sense. I remember feeling this so acutely the first time we went through a wildfire season and I was just working outside day in, day out with a mask on and it was really disorienting after a while um you know the like color of the sky was different all the time and it felt bizarre so yeah it's really bizarre um and you know I just sort of stopped feeling my body like I can feel Mm -hmm. the achiness and the pain of of doing that work but I because I'm just I know that I just have to keep doing it. There's there's some part of me that knows very well how to just sort of set my body aside and say, like, I'll come back for you. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which I just want to say, like, if people have those kinds of skills, there's, we should be honoring them because that's a, that's a way that we survive. You know, it's not like a thing to be ashamed of. No, it is a thing to try and address at a certain point when we have the time and space to do that. But it's like a, that's like a thing where we should be saying to ourselves, like, wow, good job, buddy. Like, that's a thing that you just adapted without consciously making that choice. Um, But people do that in all different ways. Like, we get through our hard experiences in myriad beautiful ways. Yeah. I would say that I experienced the same thing, but in a different way. I just, like, I... Like when I'm harvesting or when I'm doing like a repetitive task, I am not there. I am in a cycle of inner thought that is like um, constantly cycling around solving a problem or like going down a stress or like shame spiral. And so it's like, oh, I didn't like water the carrots and so now they probably won't germinate and so then I'll have a really sparse like stand and then I won't be able to have enough for the CSA and then all the you know it's just like I am constantly running a loop of of like negative self-talk and stress mm-hmm. while I'm still while my body is still like making the things happen that need to happen in order to feed people. And it's just like, it's so hard when you're in that moment of stress and anxiety to pull yourself back into like a a sense of like groundedness and like, um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I should have said, too, that one of my bodies, one of the ways that I hold it is just by, like, going into my head and neglecting the rest of my body. Um, Yes. And I have the same thing going on in my head, except it's just, like, a running to-do list constantly. Um, Just, like, uh, thin the beets, hoe the carrots. Did I deliver that thing? Did I print labels for this thing? Uh, you know, it's just, it's constant and it doesn't, it takes a lot of time for me to be able to turn that off. Yes. I almost never have it off until winter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then even in winter, sometimes it's like, oh, what was that thing that I thought, I told myself in the fall that I wanted to do? And, how did I say I was going to see these things differently? That's right. Yes. What variety of onion, like, didn't do so good? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. It's so easy and, to dip in. Yeah. And I would just normalize, too, that because of the society and the culture that we live in, mm-hmm. we are very yeah. much socialized from a young age that our bodies are just a vehicle for carrying our brains around. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and that and that's useful in some ways, but also like we store so much information and 
resources in our body that we actually really need to have access to. Um, otherwise, we don't get to be like our complete whole selves. And that would be, yeah, I have a, I don't know if this will translate very well, but there's something that I really love to think about. I was listening to something about brain, the brain and, and this sciencey person was talking about how we make distinctions between the mind and the body, which is just like so, so strange. And they were like, well, if you make a distinction between the mind and the body, then you all, they should also add the belly because we mm-hmm. have just as many nerve endings in our belly as we do in our brain. And so I've always, I always think about that, that we are so disconnected from our body that we have to distinguish like what is happening in our brains from what is happening in the rest of our bodies. And, you know, I can speak from my own experience of having a lot of indigenous principles around food are like you are what you eat and that is such a huge a huge like connection between the mind body and the belly and the spirit mm-hmm. yeah there's so much incredible science uh right now that i think is really affirming what so many indigenous mm-hmm. cultures have said forever um mm-hmm around like our connection between our gut and our brains and I actually think there's science that says that our gut knows when something is going to happen before our brains do and that so many of the the microbes in our gut are directly linked to our brain activity and so like there's a lot of amazing metaphors that can be drawn to that but um, you know, a lot of cultures that have been fermenting foods or, you know, preserving foods in a way that really enhances our bodies. Microbiomes is it's in part for our, like that, that kind of food and that kind of eating really drives this instinctual connection between our gut and our brains. Um, that's so amazing. Yeah. Which is very cool. Wow. We could we could have an entirely different four hour conversation about microbes. We should definitely do that. Oh my <laughs> god. I'm gonna be thinking about that a lot. I cannot wait. Yeah. Maybe could you talk a little bit about like so we carry it in our bodies, we're expected to be excellent and our the current conditions around farming are are very um, under-resourced. Can yeah. you make a big connection to, like, um, some of the systemic issues that drive that? And then maybe, I don't know, maybe cut. I'm thinking my brain is just like perfectionism, perfectionism. Talk about that. <laughs> and so <laughs> um, take Take that where you will. Oh, boy. Okay, I'll do my best, and then maybe you can fill in some of the gaps. Okay, well, I mean, I think this particular moment we're in where we're talking about racial justice all the time, it's really critical to draw the connections 
to our modern agricultural system and how those developed. So our modern agricultural system basically was founded on the genocide of indigenous peoples and then the um, enslavement of folks brought over from Africa. And our, our modern agricultural system is an adaptation of a system that is based on that genocide and exploitation of labor. That's and right. then you throw in things like the Green Revolution after World War II that introduced mm-hmm. such massive amounts of chemicals into our agricultural system. And I think what you end up with is a system of agriculture that is deeply embedded in white supremacy and in mm-hmm. the people who do that labor necessarily having to be very disembodied because it is yeah. it is really, really difficult labor that is not valued inside of capitalism. Um, and you see that in other, again, in other like caretaking professions, uh, like teachers and nurses and people who care for elders. Um, and so I think so many of the pillars of white supremacy are deeply embedded in our agricultural system. Like you mentioned perfectionism and mm. um constant scarcity of time yeah. um, I don't know what yourself up by your bootstraps right and you know Project. we have through very careful crafting and messaging also embedded so many of the ideas of like manifest destiny and oh yeah you know colonialism is just so deeply embedded in yeah. the work that we do and the sense that we have entitlement to this land and we are going to um, dominate it into submission. Yes. And extract and, from it. And extract from it and keep taking and taking and taking. And I also want to note that like those principles are very present in the movements around organic agriculture mm-hmm. and right. regenerative agriculture. Like one of the leaders of the regenerative agriculture movement who I will not name has said out loud to many people that if he could control every element of nature down to precipitation, he would just because it allows him to calculate his, you know, profit per square inch. Um, and that's a problem. And that's somebody that mm-hmm. people in the re- quote unquote regenerative agriculture movement are looking towards for leadership and for information and for resources. Um, And so I think, yeah, I I don't know. What do you have to say about that? Because I feel like this is a huge topic that we could blow open. I think you just did a a brilliant job of, like, really connecting the dots succinctly. I mean, it's so big that we could talk about it again for another four hours. But, yeah, I think that that idea of control and extraction 
and perfectionism and a sense of urgency and like living within perceived conditions of scarcity all the time also drives stress and anxiety and dissociation mm-hmm. for, for everybody. You know, people used to have a very spiritual connection to land. Yes. And our modern agricultural system has no space for that. You no. know, it has no space for an understanding that the land that we're cultivating, that's a relationship and the land is alive and the, and the creatures yep. and the, the plants are alive. Yep. And those people, those creatures have a spirit to them and need to be tended in a way that is, um, full you know, of care. In, in right, full of care and in right relationship to the land. And mm-hmm. I think for folks like you were mentioning who have, um, so many of us have trauma specifically related mm-hmm. to land, especially for black folks, for yes. indigenous folks, yes. for people mm-hmm. who've been forced to migrate or, for a lot of farm workers whose relationship to land is one of um, just constant migration where they're treated poorly on any land that they're on. Um, So I think it's when you hold one of those identities and when you are farming or when you're coming back to the land, uh, yeah. We don't have space in our current agri- agricultural system, at least in most places, to acknowledge that there is something fundamentally really, it can be really healing and it also can be really challenging and confronting and that there are sometimes generations of trauma that come up when you start putting your hands into the soil and yeah. um, reconnecting in that way. Mm-hmm. I love what Leah Penniman says. There's a beautiful podcast that we can put in the show notes um, where Leah Penniman and the co-host really dive into this idea of what is it like to have trauma that your body associates with land-based work and how can the land be composting your trauma for you and what they say is that just by being on the land your trauma is composted and the land is what is doing the composting and I think that's so brilliant and so true in my own experience especially having black indigenous people of color out to our farm and just seeing you know we had I love this story. We had students, Native students, come for a day, and they harvested um, dry beans that were from the Cherokee Nation Seed Bank, and we shared a meal together by the what is now called the Skagit River. And I looked out into the water, and I was like, what is that? And it was salmon. It, I'd never seen salmon in the river before that day. And all those sweet young people were just like totally 100%. They were already moved, you know, by harvesting these beans and touching ancestral foods. 
And then like the salmon were like, yeah, do it. You're doing, you're doing good. <laughs> Here I am. And I just like, so that's a long winded affirmation of what I feel like a lot of BIPOC folks feel and experience that there's this paradox that the land is healing and that the land holds trauma. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that story gave me chills. <laughs> That's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about the contradiction because um I think specifically for BIPOC folks, if you're working on land but you're guided by people, maybe white people mm. who don't mm. understand that there's a deeper connection and deeper traumas that may need to get addressed there, then it can cause yeah. some like fissuring, right? Or yeah. you don't where none of those pieces get seen or acknowledged. And I've definitely had that experience before where yeah. um it felt like some kind of soul was work was missing from that work. And um, it felt depleting in a whole different way than yeah. just being physically depleting. And I think, to be honest, a lot of the time on my farm when I'm just in the hustle and trying to get CSA boxes out as, as efficiently as I can and, yep. you know, keep on top of so many of the weekly and daily tasks that have to happen on a farm, like, it it breaks something inside of me, too, and yeah. I have not yet been able to come to a better place around that where I get to, you know, have my physical well-being and and be doing all the different tasks that I need to keep up with at the same time. Yeah. Um, and and I, I completely relate to that. And I want to say that, like, the conditions are not right for us to be able to have what we need in order for that experience, which, you know, fundamentally is a wonderful one, you know, getting boxes of food out to the community to feed them. But if you think about, I can speak for myself, you know, we're, we're, we don't have generational wealth to lean on. We're doing, we're building our little business from the ground up. And so what that means is often our labor is free and our labor is what is pushing the farm. And it is the, it is like the only resource we have to give. And it is required across so many different areas of the farm that it feels like we're so stretched. Whereas if we were able to, you know, create more land-based livelihoods, that would to make the process of, like, packing and delivering boxes effective and efficient and not under conditions of scarcity, then it would be a beautiful process. And so I think that there's – there are some, like, material um, – some material reasons for this, like, for the stress and for the anxiety. And if we were to be more resourced, it would be a different story. Yeah, and that makes me just think about your first question of, like, why we don't talk about mental health yeah. enough in the farming community. <laughs> and it's 
it's like the conditions aren't right, but we're not told that. What we're told, like, and what is also reinforced through our farming communities and now through Instagram or social media (laughs) is, like, if you hustle hard enough, it'll just work, and you'll have a beautiful farm, and it'll be thriving, and weed-free, you'll have, like, a massive Instagram following, you might get a Carhartt sponsorship, (laughs) Um, you know, and that does not lend Mm -hmm. itself to people being truthful about having a hard time, and that's not a, you know, I have such a love-hate relationship with Instagram because it's such a beautiful Mm -hmm. tool for sharing what's going on on the farm and for offering people a deeper connection and look into what a farm looks like and then it just like doesn't it just can't possibly show all of the hardship that goes into that and I also think the people that are really held up as our models for um this modern day sustainable agricultural movement we're not getting the full picture of how those farms started like Mm -hmm. was there startup capital Mm -hmm. spoiler alert yes there probably was (laughs) um and it really especially through social media like there's so much perfectionism or perfection that gets shown that is an un it's an impossible standard to meet absolutely and in particular if you come from a background where you don't have generational wealth or don't have family support don't have a broader community around you supporting you live really rurally where there aren't access to markets with a lot of money or where you don't have reliable internet access <laughs> all sorts of factors that make you're just like our modern day agricultural system is set up for people to fail and yes and i think people are internalizing that as a personal failure rather than systemic yes. failure yes that is a nugget i think that is a really good nugget just like <laughs> There are systemic conditions that we're not small scale agroecologically minded farms are, you know, you know what they say, like the system isn't broken. It's designed for farms like us to not succeed. And I think that we're pushed, we're socialized to believe that that's a personal failure and not a condition that could be changed in the future or now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm, So good. Thank you, Ari, for just opening this conversation and getting it out there. Please join us for the second part of our conversation where we focus on skills and practices to manage stress and anxiety. See you soon.
This call is now being recorded. I am on the phone with Linda from Osborne Seeds, who has very graciously supported some of this podcast work. Linda, is there anything you want to share with our audience who are listening? Sure. Um, so I'm with I'm a sales representative with Osborne Quality Seeds, and we're a seed distributor based in uh, Washington State in the Skagit Valley. And we sell our vegetable, herb, and flower seeds, uh, as well as cover crop across the country to small-scale growers. And we're always very excited to start working with young and beginning farmers. Um, and so we always are trying to sponsor and help out the Young Farmers uh, Coalition and the Washington chapter uh, with this work. Um and we're excited to just be uh, trying to provide information and variety uh, selection information for our customers uh, as, you know, in this time when we can't really be out in the field with farmers as much as we normally are. That's great. And as a grower who buys from you all, I got to say your customer service and just like being able to troubleshoot has been amazing. And I really appreciate everything that you all do. So thank you so much, Linda. And check out OsborneSeeds.com or. Yeah, our website is OsborneSeed.com. And uh, you can also give us a call. Our number is 800-845-9113. And um, we can send you a catalog and our entire selection is also on our website. That's great. Thanks so much, Linda, and thank you for supporting all the growers with all your great seeds. Yeah, and thank you guys for growing everything. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's our show for today. Please join us next week for the rest of this powerful conversation with Ariana. If you want to support our Washington chapter and our 45 other farmer-led chapters across the country, and make sure that young farmers and ranchers, farmers of color, and farm workers are included in farm policy, please become a member today at youngfarmers.org join. And you can also join our advocacy network by texting FARMERS to 40649. Be safe out there, everyone.